Chapter 12 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 12. Rendezvous. When the Italian woman, having recognised him with a discreet smile, introduced G.J. into the drawing-room of the Cork Street flat, he saw Christine lying on the sofa by the fire. She, too, was in a tea-gown. She said, Do not be vexed. I have my migraine. I am good for nothing. But I gave the order that thou shouldst be admitted. She lifted her arms, and the long sleeves fell away. G.J. bent down and kissed her. She joined her hands on the nape of his neck, and with this leverage raised her whole body for an instant, like a child, smiling, then dropped back with a fatigued sigh, also like a child. He found satisfaction in the fact that she was laid aside. It was providential. It set him right with himself. For to put the thing crudely, he had left the tragic Concepcion to come to Christine, a woman picked up in a promenade. True, Sarah Trevise had agreed with him that he could accomplish no good by staying at Concepcion's. Concepcion had withdrawn from the vision of men. True, it could make no difference to Concepcion whether he retired to his flat for the rest of the day and saw no one, or whether, having changed his ceremonious clothes there, he went out again on his own affairs. True, he had promised Christine to see her that afternoon, and a promise was a promise, and Christine was a woman who had behaved well to him, and it would have been impossible for him to send her an excuse, since he did not know her surname. These apparently excellent arguments were specious and worthless. He would anyhow have gone to Christine. The call was imperious within him, and took no heed of grief, nor propriety, nor the secret decencies of sympathy. The primitive man in him would have gone to Christine. He sat down with a profound and exquisite relief. The entrance to the house was nearly opposite the entrance to a prim but fashionable and expensive hotel. To ring, and ring the right bell, and wait at Christine's door almost under the eyes of the hotel was an ordeal. The fat and untidy Italian had opened the door and shut it again, quick. He was in another world, saved, safe. On the dark staircase, the image of Concepcion with her temperament aroused and condemned to everlasting hunger. The unconquerable Concepcion blasted in an instant of destiny. This image faded. She would remarry. She ought to remarry. And now he was in Christine's warm room, and Christine, temporary invalid, reclined before his eyes. The lights were turned on, the blinds drawn, the stove replenished, the fire replenished. He was enclosed with Christine in a little world with no law and no conventions except its own, and no shames nor pretenses. He was, as it were, in the East. And the imminence of a third person, the Italian, accepting naturally and completely the code of the little world, only added to the charm. The Italian was like a slave from whom it is necessary to hide nothing and never to blush. A stuffy little world with a perceptible odour. Ordinarily he had the common insular appetite for ventilation, but now stuffiness appealed to him. He scented it almost voluptuously. The ugliness of the wallpaper, of the furniture, of everything in the room was naught. Christine's profession was naught. Who could positively say that her profession was on her face, in her gestures, in her talk? Admirable as was his knowledge of French, it was not enough to enable him to criticise her speech. Her gestures were delightful. Her face? Her face was soft. Her puckered brow was touching in its ingenuousness. She had a kind and a trustful eye. It was a lewd eye, indicative of her incomparable endowment. 
but had he not encountered the lewd eye in the very arcana of the respectability of the world outside? On the sofa, open and leaves downward, lay a book with a glistening coloured cover entitled Phantomas. It was the seventh volume of an interminable romance, which for years had had a tremendous vogue among the concierge, the work-girls, the clerks, and the cocottes of Paris. An unreadable affair, not even indecent, which nevertheless had enchanted a whole generation. To be able to enjoy it was an absolute demonstration of lack of taste. But did not some of his best friends enjoy books no better? And could he not, any day in any drawing-room, see martyred books dropped open and leaves downwards, in a manner to raise the gorge of a person of any bookish sensibility? Thou would play for me? she suggested. But the headache? It will do me good. I adore music, such music as thou playest. He was flattered. The draped piano was close to him. Stretching out his hand, he took a little pile of music from the top of it. "'But you play, then,' he exclaimed, pleased. "'No, no, I, I tap only, and a very little.' He glanced through the pieces of music. They were all, without exception, waltzes, by the once popular waltz kings of Paris and Vienna, including several by the King of Kings, Berger. He seated himself at the piano and opened the first waltz that came. "'Oh, I adore the waltzes of Berger,' she murmured. That is only he. You don't think so? He said he had never heard any of this music. Then he played every piece for her. He tried to see what it was in this music that so pleased the simple. And he saw it, or he thought he saw it. He abandoned himself to the music, yielding to it, accepting its ideals, interpreting it as though it moved him, until in the end it did produce in him a sort of factitious emotion. After all, it was no worse than much of the music he was forced to hear in very refined circles. She said, ravished, You decipher music like an angel, and hummed a fragment of the waltz from the Rosenkovalia, which he had played for her two evenings earlier. He glanced round sharply. Had she then real taste? It is like that, isn't it? she questioned, and hummed it again, flattered by the look on his face. While at her invitation he repeated the waltz on the piano, whose strings might have been made of zinc, he heard a ring at the outer door, and then the muffled sound of a colloquy between a male voice and the voice of the Italian. Of course, he admitted philosophically, she has other clients already. Such a woman was bound to have other clients. He felt no jealousy, nor even discomfort, from the fact that she lent herself to any male with sufficient money and a respectable appearance. The colloquy expired. Ring, please, she requested, after thanking him. He hoped that she was not going to interrogate the Italian in his presence. Surely she would be incapable of such clumsiness. Still, women without imagination, and the majority of women were without imagination, did do the most astounding things. There was no immediate answer to the bell, but in a few minutes the Italian entered with a tea tray. Christine sat up. I will pour the tea, said she, and to the Italian, Marta, where is the evening paper? And when Marta returned with a newspaper damp from the press, Christine said, To monsieur... Not a word of curiosity as to the unknown visitor. G.J. was amply confirmed in his original opinion of Christine. She was one in a hundred. To provide the evening paper. It was nothing, but it was enormous. Sit by my side, she said. She made just a little space for him on the sofa, barely enough so that he had to squeeze in. The afternoon tea was correct, save for the extraordinary thickness of the bread and butter. 
but G.J. said to himself that the French did not understand bread and butter, and the Italians still less. To compensate for the defects of the bread and butter, there was a box of fine chocolates. I perfect my English, she said. Tea was finished. They were smoking. The evening news spread between them over the tea things. She articulated with a strong French accent the words of some of the headings. Mr. Carlos Smith kneeled at the front, she read out. What is it, that woman there? She must be celebrated. There was a portrait of the illustrious Conception, together with some sympathetic remarks about her, remarks conceived very differently from the usual semi-ironic, semi-worshipping journalistic references to the stars of Conception's set. G.J. answered vaguely, I do not like too much these society women. They are worse than us, and they cost you more. Ah, if the truth were known... Christine spoke with a queer, restrained, surprising bitterness. Then she added, softly relenting, However, it is sad for her. Who was he, this monsieur? G.J. replied that he was nobody in particular, so far as his knowledge went. Ah, one of those who are husbands of their wives, said Christine acidly. The disturbing intuition of women. A little later he said that he must depart. But why? I feel better. I have a committee. A committee? It is a work of charity for the French wounded. Ah, but in that case. But, beloved? Yes. She lowered her voice. How dost thou call thyself? Gilbert. Thou knowest I have a fancy for thee. Her tone was delicious, its sincerity absolutely convincing. Too amiable. No, no, it is true. Say, return, return after thy committee. Take me out to dinner. Some gentle little restaurant, discreet. There must be many of them in a city like London. It is a city so romantic. Oh, the little corners of London. But, of course, I should be enchanted. Well, then. He was standing. She raised her smiling, seductive face. She was young, younger than the Comtethian, less battered by the world's contacts than Conception. She had the inexpressible virtue and power of youth. He was nearing fifty, and she, perhaps half his age, had confessed his charm. And say, my Gilbert, bring me a few flowers. I have not been able to go out today. Something very simple. I detest that one should squander money on flowers for me. Seven-thirty, then, said he. And you will be ready? I shall be very exact. Thou wilt tell me all that concerns thy committee. That interests me. The English are extraordinary. Chapter 13 In Committee Within the hotel, the glowing gold hall, whose Lincruster Walton panels dated it, was nearly empty. Of the hundred small round tables, only one was occupied. A bald head and a large green hat were almost meeting over the top of this table, but there was nothing on it except an ashtray. A waiter wandered about amid the thick, plushy silence and the stagnant pools of electric light, meditating upon the curse which had befallen the world of hotels. The red lips beneath the green hat discernibly moved, but no faintest murmur therefrom reached the entrance. The hot, still place seemed to be enchanted. The sight of the hotel flower stall recessed on the left reminded G.J. of Christine's desire. Forty thousand skilled women had been put out of work in England because luxury was scared by the sudden vista of war. But the black-garbed girl entrenched in her mahogany bower 
was still earning some sort of a livelihood. In a moment, wakened out of her terrible boredom into an alert smile, she had sold to G.J. a bunch of expensive chrysanthemums, whose yellow petals were like long, curly locks. Thoughtless, he meant to have the flowers delivered at once to Christine's flat. It would not do. It would be indiscreet. And somehow, in the absence of braiding, it would be equally indiscreet to have them delivered at his own flat. Um, I shall be leaving the hotel in about an hour. I'll take them away myself then, he said, and inquired for the headquarters of the Letchford French Hospitals Committee. Committee, repeated the girl vaguely. I expect the Onyx Hall's what you want. She pointed up a corridor and gave change. G.J. discovered the Onyx Hall, which had its own entrance from the street, and which in other days had been a café lounge. The pressured pavement was now half-hidden by wooden trestles, wooden cubicles and cheap chairs. Temporary flexes brought down electric light from a stained glass dome to illuminate card indexes and pigeonholes and piles of letters. Notices in French and Flemish were suspended from the ornate onyx pilasters. Old countrywomen and children in rough foreign clothes, smart officers in strange uniforms, privates in shabby blue, gentlemen in morning coats and spats, and untidy Englishwomen, with eyes romantic, hard or wistful, were mixed together in the onyx hall, where there was no enchantment and little order, save that good French seemed to be regularly spoken on one side of the trestles, and regularly assassinated on the other. G.J., mystified, caught the grey eye of a youngish woman with a tired and fretful expression. And you? she inquired perfunctorily. He demanded with hesitation, is this the Letchford Committee? The what committee? The Letchford Committee headquarters. He thought she might be rather an attractive little thing at, say, an evening party. She gave him a sardonic look and answered, not rudely, but with large tolerance. Can't you read? By means of gesture scarcely perceptible, she directed his attention to an immense linen sign stretched across the back of the big room, and he saw that he was in the ant-heap of some Belgian committee. So sorry to have troubled you, he apologised. I suppose you don't happen to know where the Letchford Committee sits? Never heard of it, said she with cheerful disdain. Then she smiled, and he smiled. You know, the hotel simply hums with committees, but this is the biggest by a long way. They can't let their rooms, so it costs them nothing to lend them for patriotic purposes. He liked the chit. Presently, with a page boy, he was ascending in a lift through story after story of silent, carpeted desert. Light alternated with darkness, winking like a succession of days and nights as seen by a god. The infant showed him into a private parlour, furnished and decorated in almost precisely the same taste as Christine's sitting-room, where a number of men and women sat close together at a long deal table, whose pale classic simplicity clashed with the rest of the apartment. A thin, dark, middle-aged man of austere visage bowed to him from the head of the table. Somebody else indicated a chair, which, with a hideous noisy scraping over the bare floor, he modestly insinuated between two occupied chairs. A third person offered a typewritten sheet containing the agenda of the meeting. A blonde girl was reading in earnest, timid tones the minutes of the previous meeting. The affair had just begun. As soon as the minutes had been passed, the austere chairman turned and said evenly, I am sure I am expressing the feelings of the committee in welcoming among us Mr. Hope, who has so kindly consented to join us and give us the benefit of his help and advice in our labours. 
Sympathetic murmurs converged upon G.J. from the four sides of the table, and G.J. nervously murmured a few incomprehensible words, feeling both foolish and pleased. He had never sat on a committee, and as his war conscience troubled him more and more daily, he was extremely anxious to start work which might placate it. Indeed, he had seized upon the request to join the committee as a swimmer in difficulty clasps the gunwale of a dinghy. A man who kept his gaze steadily on the table cleared his throat and said, The matter is not in order, Mr. Chairman, but I am sure I am expressing the feelings of the committee in proposing a vote of condolence to yourself on the terrible loss which you have sustained in the death of your son at the front. I beg to second that, said a lady quickly. Our chairman has given his only son. Tears came into her eyes. She seemed to appeal for help. There were here, hears and more sympathetic murmurs. The proposer, with his gaze still steadily fixed on the table, said, I beg to put the resolution to the meeting. Yes, said the chairman, with calm self-control in the course of his acknowledgement. And if I had ten sons, I would willingly give them all, for the cause. And his firm, hard glance appeared to challenge any member of the committee to assert that his profession of parental and patriotic generosity of heart was not utterly sincere. However, Nobody had the air of doubting that if the chairman had had ten sons, or as many sons as Solomon, he would have sacrificed them all with the most admirable and eager heroism. The agenda was opened. G.J. had little but newspaper knowledge of the enterprises of the committee, and it would not have been proper to waste the time of so numerous a company in enlightening him. The common-sense custom evidently was that new members should pick up the threads as they went along. G.J. honestly tried to do so but he was preoccupied with the personalities of the committee. He soon saw that the whole body was effectively divided into two classes, the chairman of the various subcommittees and the rest. Few members were interested in any particular subject. Those who were not interested either stared at the walls or at the agenda paper, or laboriously drew intricate and meaningless designs on the agenda paper, or folded up the agenda paper into fantastic shapes, until when someone in authority brought out the formula I think the view of the committee will be... A resolution was put, and the issue settled by the mechanical raising of hands on the fulcrum of the elbow. And at each raising of hands, everybody felt that something positive had indeed been accomplished. The new member was a little discouraged. He had the illusion that the two hospitals run in France for French soldiers by the Lechford Committee were an illusion, that they did not really exist, that the committee was discussing an abstraction. Nevertheless, each problem as it was presented, the drains, postponed, the repairs to the motor ambulances, the ordering of a new X-ray apparatus, the dilatoriness of a French minister in dealing with correspondence, the cost per day per patient, the relations with the French civil authorities and the French military authorities, the appointment of a new matron who could keep the peace with the senior doctor, and the great principle involved in deducting five francs fifty centimes for excess luggage from a nurse's account for travelling expenses. Each problem helped to demonstrate that the hospitals did exist, and that men and women were toiling therein, and that French soldiers in grave need were being magnificently cared for, and even saved from death. And it was plain too that none of these excellent things could have come to pass, or could continue to occur, if the committee did not regularly sit round the table, and at short intervals perform the rite of raising hands. G.J.'s attention wandered. 
he could not keep his mind off the thought that he should soon be seeing Christine again. Sitting at the table with a mien of intelligent interest, he had a waking dream of Christine. He saw her just as she was, ingenuous and ignorant, if you like, except that she was pure. Her purity, though, had not cooled her temperament, and thus she combined in herself the characteristics of at least two different women, both of whom were necessary to his happiness. And she was his wife, and they lived in a roomy house in Hyde Park Gardens, and the war was over, and she adored him, and he was passionately fond of her. And she was always having children. She enjoyed having children. She demanded children. She had a child every year, and there was never any trouble. And he never admired her more poignantly than at the periods just before his children were born, when she had the vast, exquisitely swelling figure of the French Renaissance virgin in marble that stood on a console in his drawing-room at the Albany. Such was G.J.'s dream, as he assisted in the control of the Letchford hospitals. Emerging from it, he looked along the table. Quite half the members were dreaming too, and he wondered what thoughts were moving secretly within them. But the chairman was not dreaming. He never loosed his grasp of the matter in hand. Nor did the earnest young blonde by the chairman's side, who took down in stenography the decisions of the committee. End of chapter 13